Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to Rawa Aja. Rawa is a writer and teacher from Western Sydney. Her writing has featured in Arab Australian Other, SBS Voices and at the Sydney Writers Festival. She has received a fellowship from West Words, Varuna Emerging Writers Residential Program, is a member of the Finishing School Collective of Women Writers and teaches creative writing at schools and workshops for young people. Rawa's debut YA novel and the focus of our conversation is The F Team, which was released in September with Giramondo Publishing. Hi, Rawa. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Can we start by hearing a little bit about your brilliant book, The F Team? Uh, So basically my book, The F Team, is my first book that I've ever written. It's my debut book. Uh, Basically, it centres around a boy named Tarek Nader, who's a 15-year-old teenager trying to figure out things in life. Um, He's been asked by the new principal, an Irish, you know, no-nonsense type of principal, to um, join a rugby league competition uh, to help rehabilitate the school's image, the notorious, I guess, punchball boys. Uh, But the only catch is that this rugby league competition is uh, a mix of boys from Cronulla. Um, And the principal thinks that sport can be the quickest and fastest way to uh, help, uh, I guess, rectify the school's image in that hopefully that the school doesn't close down. But I guess the story uh, centres around a boy named Tarek who's Lebanese and another boy named Aaron from Cronulla who sort of don't really like each other and and, and they sort of have to compete for the same position of being captain. And so the story takes you along of the journey of brotherhood um, and sort of touches on the idea of racism and bigotry and identity and family and culture and religion. But really, at the end of the day, that we're all the same. And all these boys, these eight main characters in the uh, football competition, regardless of where they're from, all go through the exact same thing um, as teenagers. And so it's pretty much a journey of sport and a group of boys who don't really like each other, but they have to win the cup in order for their school to remain open. It's an amazing story. Congratulations. I really loved reading it and I'm so excited to put it in the hands of any young people that I have in my life. You've mentioned in other interviews that you really struggled to find a book that connected with you and your world while you were growing up, where you could see your life reflected on the page. Can you talk a little bit about this experience and uh, what books you were eventually able to connect with and how that inspired you to write The F Team? I think it's, you know, if somebody ever said to me that I was going to be 
a writer, I growing up, I think they were crazy. Um, like I, like you said, I had, I didn't really like reading. I, the first book I ever read, I was 15 years old, which seems crazy. Um, but I was, I was a TV kid, and I was the kid that sort of was hanging from trees. I was in the streets with with my little crew, my little wolf pack as well. Um, and so reading to me seemed like a school chore. It was something that I had to do. It was something that. Um, my teachers encouraged me to do, but I didn't really understand reading and why I should do it. Um, and it was only until I became a teacher that I realized that that sort of mindset towards reading is still the same in my community. Um, and that reading is only done because your teacher tells you to read. And I remember being 15 years old and my English teacher said to me, you know, you have your HSC coming up in the next few years. You know, you may have winged it in the last couple of years, but this is serious stuff now in your senior years. And if you want to do something in your life, you want to get a degree, you need to read. You That sort of skill is required for every um, job. Um, and she said, you know, have this book. And it was called Looking for Brandy um, by Melina, my cheddar. And I was like, oh, why would I want to read this book? Like, you know, anyway, I read it in two days. And I remember thinking to myself from going to not reading, at all to being a reader because a book spoke to my world. And like I said, fast forward, when I was teaching my community, I realized it's not reading that I disliked, it's it's books. I didn't find books spoke to my world. I couldn't connect with them. I didn't understand the places. My senses weren't ignited. Um, I couldn't picture or visualize anything that these writers or these authors were um, writing about. And then Randa Abdel Fattah wrote the book, Does My Head Look Big In This? And I remember seeing a Muslim woman on the front cover with a scarf on and written by a Muslim woman. I thought the Muslim world struck gold. <laughs> I thought, what? How is this even happening? I thought to be a writer had to be the longest process in the world. And it is a long process. Um, I found that the hard way <laughs> later on in my life. But um, it was books that made me feel safe and made me feel as though my story mattered, um, which is sort of why I wanted to write a book as well, uh, particularly for young boys. Do you feel like things are changing in publishing? Do you feel hopeful that there is a shift and that um, you're playing a part in that? I'd love to know what your experience was like getting the F team published. Did you have any expectations going into writing it that it would end up a published book? I think J.K. Rowling and I should sit down and have tea together and we could discuss our rejections um, over tea. Uh, yeah, I, it was really long and a tough journey. Um, and it, it wasn't completely because the publishing world couldn't see a story from a, a Muslim woman. I mean, the story wasn't ready as well. Like, I needed to work on my skill and my craft as well. So I take uh, a lot of, um, I guess, the responsibility of the story not being completely um, finished. But in saying that, I think we are moving in the right uh, I think we're taking the the good steps. I know, like with every movement, with everything, with every change in life, obviously more needs to be done. Um, I always say to the kids that I teach and the kids that I mentor in schools, um, I never want to be in a room where everybody looks and sounds like me. Um, I believe growth and, and learning in life is uh, about mixing in with people that are different to you. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree um, with what they say, but I think everybody has the right to tell their own story. And for a long time in publishing, I sort of, 
I got used to being um, comfortable at the back of the line and I thought that was where I should be and that was my place and I should accept that and I should be happy that at least I'm even in the line. And then you grow up and you realise that, no, I have every right to be at the front of the line because my story is just as amazing as everybody else and... Um, if I if I just gave up and, and, and thought, you know, there's no hope in the publishing world, they're only going to to print whatever they want to, I think I wouldn't be here today. And I'd be almost like a hypocrite trying to tell the youth that I work with and I mentor that you can do anything and, you know, hard work, it pays off, and then I give up. So essentially for me, um, I believe we are moving in the right direction and I think the more authors... Uh, that we sort of have trouble pronouncing their name, the better uh, in bookstores, and I mean that in the nicest way possible. Um, yeah, so I, I think I, I'm very hopeful of what the publishing future holds. You're a teacher and you also teach creative writing for young people. Have you had any feedback from kids or teenagers who have read the F team? Yeah, I actually have, which is really lovely. I mean, I was never one for social media. I mean, I'm 31 years old now and I got social media maybe a year ago. And, you know, I've been overwhelmed in the most wonderful of ways of young children from all over the country and even um, in parts, different parts of the world who um, have bought the book and have written amazing messages to me. Um, I never th- knew how amazing that would feel and I always thought that would be great if a child liked to read it but experiencing it is just on a whole nother level and all the failures and all those dark moments is and I know this sounds cliche but it's so worth it when a, a young boy or girl picks up that book and says to me you know what finally and I think that's the best compliment that I've I've so far received from my community and the youth and outside of my community it's just this idea of like, finally, I, I can feel safe reading a book and I don't have to be on edge thinking, OK, great, what are they going to write about an Arab character now? I feel safe going into the next chapters, which was really lovely. And I think, you know, I'm very humbled that people have, you know, received the book in a really positive way. That's brilliant. Also, you mentioned that it's being taught in Punchbowl at Punchbowl Boys. <laughs> yes. So Robert, the principal, who's extraordinary, he's doing such amazing things there. Um, I mentored boys from Punchbowl Boys, so I have that relationship there. And I'm also, I was born and I taught in Punchbowl. So um, pretty much still in a bubble, I think <laughs> I would say. But uh, they've they've bought class sets and they they, they want to make it as a book focus for uh, 2021. Um, and I I remember one child... Uh, one child, one one teenager, he's 15, he's, if you see him, you might think he's a child, he's very tall, um, sent me a message and said, you know, I I would love to get my hands on your book. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to, I had the day off the next day and so thought to myself, I'm going to surprise this kid. So I, I drove to the school and I, I left a signed copy in the front office and they paged him over the, over the mic to come down to the office. But I'd left because I didn't want to, you know, I don't know, embarrassed the kids, I thought. And he picked up the book and he said to me um, that he had finished reading and he thought it was just so extraordinary that I would take the time out. And and the amazing part is it's quite the opposite. It's extraordinary that they would even ask me. I'm very humbled at that fact. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I am... Punchbowl Boys is 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 my home, and and no, I'm not a boy, <laughs> but they are they are feel like my brothers, and I I would do everything I can to make sure that they feel like 
the future is theirs, just so as long as they don't believe the labels that are given to them. The F team is such a funny and engaging story. You have an amazing cast of characters and the dialogue between them is really authentic. It jumps off the page and gives the book so much energy. The boys in the F team, the wolf pack, they have a lot to be angry about, but but they also care about each other and their families so much. They're very faithful and very loving. And you capture the nuance of all those sides of them so brilliantly and tenderly. How much of this is a reflection of your own community that you tried to capture on the page? <laughs> the people always say to me, um, you know, you know, your characters are what sort out. I'm like, have you met my family? I, It's very easy. I thank them every day. I'm like, thank you for being yourselves. You've given me enough content to write a, a sequel to this book. Um, but really be beyond the, the funniness, I guess, of the book, I don't know if that's a word. Is that a word, funniness? I think so. Um, <laughs> I'm a writer. I can make up words, right? <laughs> um, is, is the fact fact that we were constantly what well, I felt like growing up constantly demonized in the media and I'm not naive to think that you know we didn't play a role there's obviously bad people in all communities but I, I was so upset that the spotlight wasn't sh- sort of shining on all those people that I knew like the bakers the butchers um the supermarket men who will hold you know your bags to your car even if your car was like so many streets away um and you know I always go back to the African proverb of it takes a village to raise a child and truly punch ball my suburb really raised me um and I I wanted to I always say they're the silent writers of my book. They really are. Um, And for a long time, we didn't have something that we were proud of. Well, you know, my, I guess, humble opinion. Um, And so I really wanted to, to create characters that weren't hard for me to write. It was actually the easiest part. And I know a lot of writers say they struggle with characters. But for me, it was the easiest thing in the world because... All I had to do was open my window <laughs> and I can hear the neighbour yelling at some other neighbour, the cars driving by saying, hey, I know your uncle. And I'm like, yep, I know he's the B-man. So we're a very close-knit community and we all, it's like first-name basis. Like if I go to the pharmacy, they know my order. They, you know, if I go to the local chicken shop, they know my order, they know my name. And I just thought to myself, why, why isn't this being shown? This is really punchable. Like it, it is 85% of punchable. And so I I think I write about place and it's really important to me because really if you're not proud of where you come from, I don't believe you can sort of move forward in life. And um I don't and I think your confidence and any hope that you have in the world sort of gets destroyed. And I believe the greatest form of oppression is taking hope away from somebody. Um and so I just I don't know, nobody asked me to do it, but I, I felt like as a, a citizen of Punchbowl that it was my responsibility to tell the men and women that I see you and I hear you and I, I think you're wonderful. As you've just spoken about, this book truly is a celebration of community. Where do you see the roles of sport and also of arts and culture in community? Sport is obviously central to the F team, but uh, the Bankstown Poetry Slam also makes an appearance, which which was really fun to read about. Yes, um, it was always the case. I mean, uh, I spent many lunchtimes trying to find a book for these young boys who pretty much said to me um, that they don't like reading, that there's nothing interesting for them to read. But watching them and observing them for many, many years, um, if I say to the naughtiest of kids that I was teaching that if you just behave, you can play a game of dodgeball, for example, or you would play sport. 
And what I would do to fix sometimes uh, the the idea of bullying or if I saw that in the playground, um, that I would put the two kids that really didn't like each other in the same team. And I'd, and I'd see, I guess, the behaviour that comes out of working for the same goal. And I realised time and time again, and it always worked, that the troubles that they had on the playground, the arguments, the swear words, whatever it is that they had sort of disappeared. It didn't matter because there was a goal. We needed to work together in order to win because really nobody likes to lose. Um, and so I, I had this epiphany going, okay, if these kids don't like to read but they love playing sport. What if I mix the two together? And sport is so, it's so embedded in Australian culture that it can be from any part of Australia and you mention the word sport, somebody watches it, whether it be cricket, rugby league, rugby union, uh, anything. And I had a personal experience of sitting at a game um, where I thought I was surrounded by people who didn't really like me in terms of me being Muslim, um, and I'm visibly Muslim, I wear the veil, um, around these white men, big, big white men, tattoos and, and, and you know, drinking beer. And, I, you know, it's funny because I, I don't like when people stereotype, you know, me and my culture, yet I was doing the same thing. Um, and I remember the Bulldogs scored and we all jumped up and I t- remember turning around and going, do you guys go for the Bulldogs? They're like, yeah. And, and you know, long story short, we became best friends at the end of it because I didn't have to explain myself. You know, normally in the street, we'll probably never talk to each other, ever. But at a game, because you, there's that atmosphere of belonging and it's so strong um, that it really can make you feel safe. And a lot of the times, not that I want to sound or, or play the victim, but for Muslim women, it's really hard sometimes to feel safe. And so sport was always something that I loved. I love watching sport. I come from a family that watches sport. And my community is very passionate. I don't know if you've ever met a Bulldog supporter. I mean, you've certainly heard because you can hear him from a mile away, to be quite honest with you. Um, And so sport was always something that you made all that nastiness disappear in my eyes. And so... Um, I sort of want to balance the idea with um, the Bankstown Poetry Slam. And I know Sarah Mansell very well. And she's incredible what she's created there. And so sometimes people think sport can be toxic or that toxic masculinity. And, um, you know, of course it exists um, as well. And sometimes people think that poetry is way too feminine. And so I wanted to mix the worlds together and sort of break stereotypes in both. Um, so, but yeah, it's it, they're very important. I, th- I think sport is underestimated and I think we should focus more on that particularly in schools. You live in Sydney and Sydney has been out of lockdown for a few months now, unlike us in Melbourne, Um, but it has been a really strange year. How have you approached the kinds of things you've been consuming, books or movies? What sort of things have held your attention this year? This is really bad to say, um, but the, the COVID or the pandemic sort of made me take my vitamins. And I know that's really strange. Like, <laughs> like I actually took my vitamins. I did some exercise, things that are so foreign to me. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's horrible to think what it's done to the world. But I'm, you know, I must say I'm very lucky in that I still had a job that I could work from home. Um, so... In terms of free time, I really didn't have free time because I was still working. I still had my job. Um, But really, I caught up on a lot of – I did catch up on a lot of reading. Um, I'm reading something now that that is really strange, but it's it's such a good book. It's 10 Arguments for Deleting Social Media, which is interesting to say the least. Um, 
Yeah, and so I've been very lucky, like I said, that, you know, you know, COVID really didn't affect my family personally. My dad still has a job. You know, I had a job and my brother and sister still have jobs. Um, but yeah, so I, I've been, and I didn't watch TV, which is great. Like, it's awesome when you don't watch TV. <laughs> I, I stuck to books and just, yeah, just hanging out with my mum, I think. <laughs> that sounds beautiful. You've also become a bit of a big deal on TikTok, <laughs> haven't you? <laughs> But not, not me, my dad. My dad's become a big deal on TikTok. Nobody cares about me. <laughs> I'm just a shadowy figure in the background, that's all. You've agreed to read a little bit from the F team for us. Do you want to um, set up the extract that you're going to read? Um, so this part is where, I'm <clears throat> just opening up my book here, it's basically they've, um, the father, who's based on my father in real life, has found out that his son Tarek, um, and his and his friends uh, were involved in egging the local girls' high school, and he's mortified because he's such a patriot to Australia and Australian culture. Um, pretty much carries the Australian flag wherever he goes, even though it's not necessary, but he still does that. Um, and he's pretty much now um, his car at home or their family car is in service at the mechanic, and so they. What the boys don't know is that they ha- they're heading towards the girls' high school but they have to go in an interesting vehicle. So here here we go. (laughs) Thanks so much. Take it away, Rawa. Uncle Charlie pulled the tarp from the truck with a flourish and there she was, the famous white and pink ice cream truck that he supposedly found abandoned on the side of the road. It still had the pictures of the ice cream all over it and a stupid red light on the roof. He opened the back doors and a puff of dust hit us straight in the face. There were no seats back there. Instead, my uncle had a bunch of milk crates covered in cobwebs. I could feel PJ breathing down my neck. I'm going to drink your blood. Huss didn't make the situation better by laughing his head off at PJ and Ibi as they squeezed their bodies in through the door. Walla, keep laughing and watch what's going to happen, Dumbo, Ibi said, kicking Huss a few times as Uncle Charlie started the engine. Just when we thought it couldn't get worse, deafening Arabic music blasted through the speakers. I stared at the ground, trying to ignore the death stares set my way. We drove around the block and dropped off Amira at her school with her diorama. Some of the kids pointed and laughed at us as we shut the door behind her. We gave them the finger through the back window as we drove off. I knew I should tell the boys where we were going. So, guys, uh, we might be a little late to school because... Okay, boys, Dad interrupted, poking his head through the sheet through the sheet Uncle Charlie had hung between the driver's seat and the back of the truck. When we get to girls' high school, each of you need to say sorry and why. Girls' high school, Ibi repeated, confused. Why are we going there, PJ asked, inching closer. I didn't like that his body took up most of my space. Huss was the only one with any idea, not because I had told him, but because we were the only two that had egged the girls. He stayed quiet. I cleared my throat. throat) Um, uh, You know how... Because you throw eggs on girls, my dad interrupted once more. Before the boys could kill me, my uncle made a sharp left turn which toppled us over our crates and onto one another. I was squashed between PJ and Ibi who jabbed me a few times before we got back upright. Uncle, it wasn't even me or Ibi, PJ pleaded, hoping dad would set them free. It was only Hassan Tariq. Wallah, I promise. Just then... I noticed a bee hovering over Ibi's head. I think it must have followed Uncle Charlie to the truck. Ibi, don't move, I said, trying to slowly slide away. There's a bee above your head. 
His body stiffened. His googly eyes widened with fear. Please, Tarek, move it away. Please, Ya Allah, help me. Hass and PJ were now sitting close to the back doors and held their bags over their heads. It was too risky for any of us to help Ibi in the confined space. So we watched him sweat it out until the bee casually landed on his nose. Watch and see, your dogs. Watch and see what I'm going to do when we get out of this truck, he threatened, now cross-eyed. Bang! My uncle slammed the brakes hard and a loud, girlish scream rang out. At first we thought that Uncle Charlie had run someone over, but it was Ibi. He'd been stung. Dad opened the back doors and we all jumped out. Ibi held his nose in pain and screamed out for some water. PJ opened his backpack and pulled out an ice-cold two-litre Pepsi bottle. Tarek, use this. Before I could do anything, Hus snatched the bottle and poured it over Ibi's face. He fell to the ground, rolling left to right, still in pain and now covered in Pepsi. Uh, PJ said at Ibi in his Pepsi puddle. I think you were meant to put the cold bottle on the sting, bro, I said to Hus while Ibi screamed. He shrugged. How am I supposed to know that? A loud cheer echoed around us. We turned and there were the girls from the high school standing behind their school fence, pointing and laughing at the defunct ice cream truck, at Ibi and at his Pepsi puddle, at us. I can be any flavour you want, one girl shouted. Ooh, take me for a ride, another said. Kill me now. Thank you so much for joining me. No worries. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. That was Rawa Aja reading from her debut YA novel, The F Team. It's published by Duramondo and available now. Please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world.